positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America. No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God damn America. That's in the Bible for killing innocent people. God damn America for treating us citizens as less than human. God damn America. As long as she tries to act like she is God and she is supreme. Okay, everyone. Uh... Welcome to the show this week. No funny intro. I know we're all grieving. We're all mourning. Um, you know, this is a comedy podcast, but uh, obviously there are times when it's more prudent for us to, you know, be a little uh, respectful of um, the fact that the UCB theater got the shit destroyed out of it and it's dead and in hell now. <laughs> uh, you stupid rich bastards. I fucking hate UCB so much. I'm glad it's dead. Um, <laughs> How are you guys holding up? Uh, oh man, uh, dude, feel like pure shit. Just want it back. Um, it, all that shit. I was laughing the other day about the idea of like, clapping out my window at ucb instructors the way that people do at like nurses and shit what a, <laughs> mm-hmm. what a dumb they hate up. it they don't actually make money <laughs> so the claps are the best they're gonna get <laughs> they say laughter is the best medicine so yeah just going to the hospital and laughing at everyone yeah that's not how it this works. is what a bernie sanders government would supply is taking those furloughed ucb employees and putting them in the hospitals <laughs> you know cheering be, up the ventilated elderly elders I, i've got an idea for a sketch and i didn't have to go to school to come up with this bitch um <laughs> How about <laughs> Patch Adams, but he's like a roast comedian, you know? He's like an edgelord, wow. and he just insults the kids with the cancer. He's got the mm-hmm. little nose on. <laughs> I don't know. Um, Jake, I see you famously not getting along with like the kind of criticism they do at these kinds of schools. Like, Do you ever, do you ever <laughs> run into those kinds of people? Or like, yeah, I see Patch Adams. He's at the hospital. What's the game there? How are you escalating from Patch Adams at the hospital? I know I how to hate that more than anything. I know how to escalate, you idiot. You can't teach that. <laughs> I got it from watching Mad TV and shit. Um, ironically, Should we introduce ourselves. Yeah, fuck Did it. Did we ever do that? No, we didn't. Um, rest in peace, UCB bitch. I'm Jake Flores. Uh, Alex Patak is here. I'm Matt Besser. <laughs> Anders Lee is here. Anders Lee here. Name, location. Uh, time, uh, no, they don't say name. <laughs> no, you just did. <laughs> did they ever intro you just, <laughs> What's my name? You just, Someone give me my name. What's my name? <laughs> <laughs> you just uh, did cybering, age, location, uh, sex. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> I'm yeah. touching myself. That's, that's UCB's new vocation. <laughs> do do the UCB instructors not get paid? I thought the students didn't get paid. Um, the performers. The students, I think you get paid to teach the class, but you don't get paid to perform. I think you get paid in more classes. You're able to take more. You know what? This is this has been a really radicalizing issue for me because as a stand-up, you're really brainwashed to eat the dirt off of boots from day one. Like the uh-huh. first thing I remember being told when I expressed any interest in doing stand-up was you have to do it at least ten times a week, or it doesn't 
count that you're trying and <laughs> yeah. uh, you should never expect to be paid for any of the times. So then when I found out UCB wasn't paying their, their performers, I was like, of course, they're not getting paid. I'm not getting paid. Why would anyone ever get paid? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> How did they pull that off? <laughs> Dude, I fucking hate comedians so much. Like this quarantine thing is really kind of uh brightened a lot of issues like it's made a lot of things seem way more obvious than they usually were because usually you're just surrounded by all the weird tiny microscopic uh you know just minutiae of life but like really looking at what stand-up comedy is now is very stupid i i was just looking at um brian yang's twitter last night because he had the coronavirus COVID patient he yeah. went into the hospital had coronavirus was on a respirator or a ventilator got out he's a comedian the guy likes doing comedy and he was like rightfully making fun of people last night for like people are like angling at like doing shows again like uh you know kind of going like all right when can we just do a comedy show again if you want to fill your calendar if you want to get get on shows you gotta email now man it was nobody's emailing now <laughs> It was pathetic before. Now you're getting people killed with this shit, man. No one needs to do stand-up right now. I have a folder on my laptop that I was using as recently as six weeks ago called, where is it? Uh, shows to pathetically beg. <laughs> and not only, not only do I use it, there's like 28 bar shows on here and I have all their emails. And then I'm like, please, just have me for no money just send me to your bar and uh you beg them and then they usually say no so you have to send more than you're than you want but not only have i been using it i've sent this to like 10 other people because everyone wants to beg and grovel on the ground <laughs> for stage time what a what a like sordid way to live your life we were well, engaged the, in like a massive facade that's i mean the comparisons to the Church of Scientology have been made and are at this point a hack, but like this really is just people manipulating your like ego and stuff, or kind of a, a just a predatory system that came up around the fact that like if you make people you can if you sell people validation like this, they will just give up like everything and all of their money for it. Yeah. Oh yeah, and then in the background you're like Amy Schumer. She's got a million dollars. <laughs> Wouldn't you like a mil? You could be in train wreck with John Cena <laughs> holding you in his big gorilla arms. <laughs> well, I think stand-up's going to come back in two waves where everyone who is like desperately begging for shows right now is going to get booked once it's over, and then they're all going to die because the virus <laughs> won't be gone yet. And then, then there won't be enough comedians. There will be a shortage. There will <laughs> oh, be in high demand. That. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if there's... That's another thing about comedy, though. I don't know if there's any demand. I feel like it somehow is a business that exists without a demand. It has none of the features of like an actual thing that we understand to be a business with you know, people that like want it. It's not like a product. It. There's no scarcity. It's a thing that just somehow exists, like, in spite of... Adam Smith is pulling his hair out. Like, it doesn't make any fucking sense. <laughs> Imagine if nobody wanted people. apples, okay? <laughs> so there's no demand for apples. Everyone has apples, or they can just find apples if they need them. And then sometimes you'll be at a bar... 
like on a Tinder date, you know, just trying to get to know someone. And then all of a sudden apples just fucking pop out of the blue and people start <laughs> chucking them at you. That well, is exactly what stand up comedy is like right now. <laughs> and it's also it's always been a very like vibe based art form. So depending on the vibe in the room, your apple either tastes amazing like a fucking baked Granny Smith, voila, or just like a piece of dung, you know? Depending right. on the atmosphere. <laughs> oh, we hate dung apples, don't we, folks? I wish I knew folks, how thanks to. Thanks for tuning in. How do you like your apples? <laughs> I wish I knew how to elevate this apple riff that we're on, but unfortunately, I don't have nine thousand dollars and all of the time in the world <laughs> to go to a school and learn how to do that. And people's then... reaction to this is crazy because i've seen so many of my friends posting not only like someone they knew died but with this incredible defensiveness <laughs> like i am not from a rich family yeah, i are. work in an office <laughs> and i enjoy sketch comedy <laughs> and it's he... like no one's mad at you what is happening <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the other thing about that, though, is that all those people are rich. Like, people often will say, like, I'm not rich. I'm, like, like here's a good one. There are a lot of unemployed TV writers right now. If you're an unemployed oh, yeah. TV writer, guess what that means? You're, you're like, you, you don't have a job you shouldn't have had to begin with right now. You're overextended. Like, you're not poor and broke or two different things. You know what I'm getting at here? Um, yeah. You seem like you have a lot of options right now. No, uh, fucking. As people. an employed TV writer, I have no comment. Oh right, I forgot you're yeah, my shut arch the enemy fuck now. Up, Anders. <laughs> you know what? You're wearing a blazer right now. You love Elizabeth <laughs> you're Warren. You're banned from the show. <laughs> you harass people online, pro Elizabeth Warren. You do pro Elizabeth Warren harassment. I know it. I knew it. Um, right, but imagine if I tried to fit in with those people, then they realize <laughs> I work. I work for Putin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Dude. Oh, I wish I had a time machine, man. Dude, Vladimir Putin can afford all of the UCB courses. He's probably so funny. That's how he... Yeah, that's the thing. He should just buy them out. They would be changing their tune in a heartbeat. <laughs> and then, first of all, he would immediately dominate American culture. Like, immediately. Yeah, dude. All of the writers are from UCB. <laughs> There's just like a one tree hill about Vladimir Putin. Like he's misunderstood and he like wins his way into the hearts of an American family. Right. He kills he kills a Serbian on a horse and he's just like, no one understands. I get sad sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he does zip zap zop and learns how to, uh, you know, limber up his Whatever the fuck you, I don't know what you learn in do in one one. Well, he definitely does the first part. Zip zaps up. He Ooh. definitely does zip zaps up. Does some zapping. That's yeah. We're not going to take the classes. They're gone. Dude, we can't take them if we want them now. <laughs> I took improv one a long time ago, back in like the when Pete Holmes's podcast was real popular, and he talked a lot about how he was like, I made myself, a, I made myself, a, I don't even know how to do his voice, a good comedian by doing like improv and stand up. And I got out of curiosity, I tried it, and like, it's so fucking funny. The first day, this instructor, you know, made everyone go around the room and say just like why they were taking the class. And I was like, I'm a comedian, and I just thought it would like help me be funnier or whatever. And then like all these other people, literally every other person was like, uh, I work at a office, and my boss said mm -hmm. that maybe it would make me 
talk more in meetings or whatever. Like literally everyone. Same story. <laughs> and I saw him get like visibly kind of uh, frustrated and confused and not know what to do with this situation. And then like three classes later, there suddenly was just this guy in the class. Was not in the other two classes. I swear to God. Like, he just appeared like a character on a TV show. And he was uh, like this, uh, this like fat, like over the top Jack Blackie, John Gabrisy kind of like ridiculously theater kid energy guy who right. just like did Very the powerful. shit out of every scene we were in. And he just was like, oh, yeah, sorry, I wasn't in the first two classes. I was sick or whatever. It was just so clearly like an op. <laughs> <laughs> he just did it to try to help this guy get through the process of teaching us people he clearly hated <laughs> to <laughs> improv. Wait, so they sent him an ace, you're saying? Yeah, dude. They, like, installed a sleeper improv student to, you know, to, to just, I don't know what the fuck to do. They activated him yeah. to do his wacky characters in your class and inspire the rest of you. It was like right. Pro or something. It was weird. <laughs> uh, I quit immediately. I fucking MK Ultra and <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know what so else. So R.I.P. to them, fellows. R yeah, R.I.P. to a real one, the Upright Citizens Brigade. Um, well, you know who else was a real one? Osama bin Laden. Now we're talking. <laughs> Osama bin Laden. Who? What's the story? He he said that Biden shouldn't be president. No, he wanted yeah, Andrews, him, this was you. He wanted him to be president. Uh, when apparently he tried to assassinate <laughs> Barack Obama, like the first what? couple years. Yeah, well, he want he like put a hit out on him. It was kind of his didn't thing. Go anywhere. Right, not him personally. He was on dialysis. Right, he was gaming. I, I this is like when you get mad and you're gaming and you're like, somebody should kill Barack Obama. <laughs> <laughs> I read the what? thing and it sounded like what happened is that he just he probably said shit like this a lot, but at one point he was like, "Yeah, someone should kill Barack Obama," and the, his reasoning after that was he thought that that would make if that then made Joe Biden president, it would be good for his cause because Biden wouldn't be good at being president, and that would catalyze like just you know chaos and the the America would fall apart if Biden was president. Right, he thought he was an idiot. Right. Yeah, he thought he was well, incompetent. Like uh, a lot of his uh, foresight, that is a hundred percent correct, <laughs> and I look forward to it. <laughs> yeah, uh, he said uh, Biden is totally unprepared for that post, which will lead to the U.S. into a crisis. Um, which like sounds kind of like mastermindy but as we've learned now uh like al-qaeda wasn't really a thing you know it was a very like loose loose network of just different uh financiers the head i guess being bin laden but it wasn't like this trained faction of you know the you know the monkey bars on in the middle in the middle of the desert like that was kind of like uh, pushed a lot more than than it actually was. Right. The uh, Upright Citizens Brigade was more organized than Al Qaeda. Yeah. Right. 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 It wasn't uh, Upright Citizens Brigade so much as it was like a talent agency, you could say. 
Or like one of those things that says it's a talent agency, but it's really a scam, <laughs> yeah. you know, right. and they're just writing on like the one time they were tertially related to someone right. who actually booked something, which is nine eleven. If you do enough monkey bars, you can get invited to the Al-Qaeda Comedy Festival, (laughs) which has loads of real inside talent scouting, scouting for the next big jihadist. I mean, Al-Qaeda basically, and I'd say ISIS more, uh, basically recruited in the same way as something like an improv school, which is sort of like preyed on people with broad city like a big empty holes inside of themselves and uh <laughs> a need to belong somewhere you know uh-huh. yeah, yeah, yeah. a lot of validation feel you feel like you have a cause now you know you feel like you're doing something that's important which is right if you think if you think a standing ovation feels good you should try um 72 virgins in heaven <laughs> if you <laughs> uh you know if you're tired of wearing a, a like a costume that you're just a carrot you know you look like a big carrot in like a in one of those plays where the ch- child is a tooth and one is a toothbrush um yeah maybe take off the carrot costume the Odyssey. put on a uh suicide bomb vest pretty much the same thing <laughs> <laughs> what is that play by the way you always care you see it all the time what play it's just a reimagining of of like lysistrata or something no it's it's a team in the war on black (laughs) it's a tv trope you see this all the time as a plot device in like sitcoms but like oh my child has an elementary school play i have to make it right and then the parent goes and then (laughs) <laughs> There's always just a vague play where one child is in a toothbrush costume and the other one's in a tooth. And it's like they made the kids at a school do a play about brushing your teeth and, you know, probably eating vegetables and stuff like that. Uh, right. I wonder if there's actually a play, though. This it just is... seems weak dramatically. Yeah, it was written by Camus. Where is the <laughs> conflict? Existentialist <laughs> drama. How, well, how about we make it into a prestige television show for HBO or something? And like yeah. The tooth and the toothbrush fuck and shit. Uh, all of the urban liberals immediately start brushing their teeth all the time. <laughs> <laughs> They're both played by Meryl Streep. Yeah. Brush and the tooth. Um. Well, oh fuck! Before we stop talking about Osama bin Laden, I have to bring this up. Have you any of you guys ever seen his son? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I haven't. <laughs> Look him up oh, right I now. I have. <laughs> Just Google Osama bin Laden's son. You will know when All you right. see him because you know you'll know that I sent you there. I'm uh, putting it in Google. I think you might have multiple adding myself sons. to another list. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Osama bin Laden's son images. Now you know he has like sixty sons, right? right? But you'll know the one that I'm talking about. The, the, the one Trump just killed. No, I think this guy's alive. He looks like he's in like he looks like Ronnie James Dio. Like he like wears oh, leather. Wait, yeah, I see him with the ponytail. Yeah, so he's like like cool braids. He looks in his like hair. one of the Turks from Final Fantasy. <laughs> yeah. Well, Osama bin Laden has a son that's just like new metal. Like he just wears like metal, like leather jackets. His wife looks like his mom. Like she's like real 
scary looking and intense and uh they're both they look like kind of like weird bikers and um but he does he's a peace activist is what he calls himself he does like events that are just to raise like peace and um he went on he did like fuck like the morning show or something really weird like that at one point uh when 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 bin laden was still alive and uh, he, he just pitched, like, basically that his dad wanted to uh, just, like, have a beer with Obama. Like, he, he, was, he was like, I think they should talk it out. <laughs> <laughs> like the beer summit? Yeah. With Henry Louis Gates Jr., he but it would have been He found for a beer summit. Probably yeah, not. He was going to explore it for terror. <laughs> <laughs> probably not beer. I want to say Bin Laden's probably a teetotaler, but um, but he was like, you know, he was like, I think they should just talk it out, and I think my dad wants to just hash it out with Barack Obama. <laughs> and uh, also, we know from earlier in this story, he was also trying to kill him. <laughs> Can you imagine yeah, I, I, I think it was how many smart. minds would have melted if Barack Obama hosted Bin Laden at the White House? He the should have done of, it. Oh, let me be clear. I do think he's a good guy. <laughs> Got to be honest. Uh, I am charmed. <laughs> yeah. I got this. I got this open on uh, some news website. Omar, Omar Bin Laden, thirty-four. His fourth eldest son uh, broke with his father in 2001 after living in Afghanistan for much of 1996 to 2001. I wonder what happened then. <laughs> yeah, this is September 12th. He decided to move out. <laughs> yeah, he. I decided he was like kind of a dick for a while. We weren't really talking. <laughs> yeah, that's why Dude, he got into all that new like- metal. Because it's if all we about, like, like, you know, a broken home. My dad's an alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. He could have done like the ultimate stained cover band. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I'm just saying, if we were like extraordinary renditioning people off the street and torturing them for years at a time to just random people, how is Osama bin Laden's son like wandering around not in the back of a van? You know, I feel like it might have something to do with the uh, Saudi money. I had to guess. Right, like the the yeah the the Saudi royal family was just protected after nine eleven, and a lot of the sort of this, these aristocrats, like Bin Laden was one. This this like clique of Middle Eastern aristocrats were just like not investigated. They just went after the the little guys. Is that your opinion or Vladimir Putin's? <laughs> <laughs> Who's sending you the cash? <laughs> I'll never <laughs> Andrew's tied up. I think it's Israel. I think Israel <laughs> is at the bottom of all these problems. <laughs> yeah. right. If you catch my drift. Um, I think it's the Ukraine. <laughs> that's your dinner. <laughs> yeah, they they are out of control. I don't know. Someone is Russia to go against there. the Ukraine? That's what <laughs> I assume. I don't even know if that's true. I'm there really bad a... at my job of being a, a Putin propagandist, if you haven't noticed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you need to get on your zip zaps off for that. Yeah. Work on your space work in order to do, uh, you know, election interference. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, object work, and it's Anders in front of a room, and he's like, I'm handling uranium. I'm putting on the gloves, <laughs> and I'm holding it. Tongs. These are tongs. <laughs> oh, look. Oh, it's so hot. 
We oh, need, it's radiation. <laughs> we need less election interference and more uh, bar interference. You know, those ambush comedy shows we were talking yes, about? Yes, absolutely. That didn't work at all. Let's talk about this ice cream we- thing. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Andrews, can you tell me what happened exactly with this Jenny's ice cream? Where's the story start? It has like two parts. Well, I believe it started on the Colbert show, Late Night with Stephen Colbert. Pelosi has been kind of a regular on there recently. Oh, no, wait, no, Corden. It was James Corden, right. the Brit. Uh, she called in, video, did a video call into the Corden program, and uh, she's been talking about the need to indulge in dessert that's one of her, you know, sort of uh, fixes to the crisis is just treat yourself, um, which everyone can do equally. So she shows Corden her like fucking industrial sized <coughs> freezer fridge combo thing. I get there are two fridges, one freezer, and the freezer is just like packed to the brim with uh, Jenny's and also I believe Godiva ice cream or Dove, something like that. Uh, just a ton of ice cream, and the Jennies came in this uh, ten pack, which someone looked this up. I think it's over a hundred bucks um, for like ice cream, and uh, so you know people are. Um, this a became a Republican cream. ad like overnight. Well, yeah, because in the fucking video, she's like wearing like the the symbol of wealth like she's got the little sweater around her neck like fred from scooby-doo mascot style right that's like a joke that's like not even how i don't think people rich people actually dressed like that like she might as well just wearing a top hat a monocle or whatever she was signaling that she was super rich and when that happened i people like were tweeting at you know the the official video or whatever and like kind of giving them shit over it and going, this sucks. Like, this is a bad message. I hate these people. And, um, you know, all the fucking usual pundits and Twitter horrible people or whatever said, like, that, you know, that it was, that this is just another case of Bernie bros being Bernie bros and annoying or whatever. You know, I think Neera Tandon was like, oh, uh, Nancy Pelosi can't eat ice cream now. Y'all are crazy or whatever. And then like overnight, it got turned into exactly what people were saying it would get turned into, which is a Trump ad where all he had to do is basically point out like that Nancy Pelosi is a rich asshole. She did all the groundwork herself to get Trump voters, you know? I just don't understand this like browbeating about pragmatism that comes from the center all the time. And yet they're the face of their movement and the face of the democratic party for the past 15 years has been the most alienating figure in American politics. One of them, Nancy Pelosi, like, and and it's not because she's left wing. It's because she's rich and she represents a very rich area, um, that, which is not to be fair. You know, there's of course a, a strong history of the radical left in San Francisco. A lot of great people come from there, but like, this is what people are talking about when they say coastal elite. So, like, why would you make that the figurehead of your party? You know, and it to her, is, it's somebody who eats a hundred dollars of ice cream. <laughs> That's not leadership material. If you're stocking up for, let's say, a month, do you need 
<laughs> more dangerous of ice cream. <laughs> if you leave it in there, it's going to get frostbitten. Any ice cream eater knows that. And you might have all the flavors, but at the cost of a severe drop in quality that is embarrassing to the average American who loves the great food of ice cream. Right. And she's also like, I don't know if she... She says she eats it every night. I don't, you know, maybe she does and she just has an awesome metabolism, which is also something people will resent, you know? Right. Not uh, relatable. <laughs> but her big thing that she always says is like, oh, I want all the same things that the left does. You know, I come from a wacko fucking far left district. We, I, I am as far left as you get. Right. Which I call I, wackos from the, from the top. So, you know, I'm on your side. Right. Like she says, I want all the same things you do, uh, but the mo- mo- the middle of the country won't go for it. So we can't do these left wing things because to her, Medicare for all and like the Green New Deal, things that will improve people's quality of life across the country in a, a very real, tangible way, lift people out of poverty. Those are on the same level to her as like a constitutional amendment making everyone vegan. It's like these are just boutique yeah. Issues that, of course, I support, but we let's get real. We can't have these things yet. I wish the I wish clowns were the police too, but it's just not on the agenda. We're all coming from the same space here. Yeah. I want to put a flower in every gun in America. <laughs> Yo, real talk though, clown cops would be fucking cool. That'd be a much more fun <laughs> show to watch. You know, I bet yeah, that's un- what they're un- going to do until until you get picked up and then you got to fit in the back of the cab <laughs> with a hundred other detainees. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, dude. <laughs> All right, man. Let's write this fucking uh, UCB approved gold star sketch clown cops. <laughs> How will we finish it? I don't know. I, he's like a taser Fast comes two out. Weeks. I just I don't see what it's about. I don't. <laughs> I want a taser to come out of the flower on his chest, and then it you know tases the shit out of you. He's like, get on the ground, honk honk. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. One thing there They're is doing riot shit where they get on each other's shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I guess they're beating people with like, what do clowns hit each other with? Giant hammer or something? Yeah, like huge that's... hammers. It would be so violent. <laughs> it would be actually far worse for your average American than the situation we have now. Thank goodness. I think I'm just describing. Pelosi is not able to get this through. I think I'm just describing the first Batman movie. I was going to say, oh, they have laughing <laughs> gas. Oh, wait a minute. That's already a thing. Yeah, there's a penguin. The cops would have a penguin. <laughs> that was the second one. I mean, one. I bet they're already doing, because some cops are starting to wear masks. A lot aren't, but uh, of the ones who are, I bet pretty soon they're going to be doing the Punisher thing, the skull, and then only a matter of time before they do the Joker makeup on the little surgical mask. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Oh. I do want to see a really tough clown, like a jacked angry clown in a cop uniform is all the right. stuff on his belt is just clown stuff like balloons well anders you you know this clowns are in incredible shape i did know a buff clown once actually <laughs> his name was roger and he had like the long hair the very bouncy fella they, they're out there <clears throat> bouncy fella um <laughs> back to this ice cream thing for just a second fuck these people I I think the thing that bothers me about this the most is that, like, 
the narrative coming out of the Nira Tandons and the media people and the people that basically won this whole thing is that, you know, if you like as an individual just person with a Twitter account say something negative about Joe Biden or something, you, you cost everyone the election, right? You're doing all the damage. But like that Nancy Pelosi ad single-handedly had to have done if we were to understand this is a thing that's really swaying votes like image and stuff like this just way more irreparable damage than like a million bernie bros right like right that sucked so hard and you can't you can't wait to till biden loses the election and she immediately turns and is like brianne joy with her selfish behavior has cost us this election (laughs) (laughs) and she's eating one of her 10 gallons of ice cream out of grief uh brie joy gray because ladies be doing that is the joke (laughs) there you you ever see ladies be eating way too much ice cream yeah when they're sad um so another thing another there's another like chapter to this weird jenny's ice cream thing though there's another thing that happened after all this which is that someone figured out that like i can't figure out exactly what it is tons and tons of donations are coming into the biden campaign from jenny's ice cream i don't know if it's like a laundering thing or if they just love joe biden (laughs) joe biden nancy pelosi (laughs) and jenny's ice cream are all just friends with each other forrest gump ice cream is his thing you know so they probably what they want is him to eat Jenny's on camera. I think that's what it is. That's got to be it. I, I looked up on Twitter Jenny's ice cream Biden because I was trying to find the original thing that I was looking at the other day. And the first tweet I got is from 2016. It's in all caps from someone saying Joe Biden is going to Jenny's ice cream downtown at two. Does anyone want to go? <laughs> so <laughs> that's right by my house. Really? Yeah. Right. I mean, ironically, this is just a step away from Trump shit where, you know, um, fucking uh, 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 what's not what's like alcohol seltzer is sending Trump messages like Trump, we love you. Take this case of this. And then Trump has his son drink a seltzer on TV and he's like, it's good, huh? Trump loves seltzers of all kinds. Yeah. Trump loves LaCroix. 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 White Claw. LaCroix. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Um, It's spritzy. It's water, but it's spritzy. He is a teetotaler. I wonder if he drinks seltzer. Probably not. It's probably like Coke. Wait, no. We we know this. He drinks Diet Coke. Oh, right. Right. Um, Yeah, apparently the Jenny's ice cream founder is like involved with Leslie Wexner and it all, everything goes back to Epstein. You know how reality works now. Um, but anyway, enough about abolishing ice cream. Let's talk about abolishing ice, the dream of the left. (laughs) (laughs) I have been practicing. Um, our guest today is John Washington, author of a book called The Dispossessed about, um, asylum, uh, and author of some articles, about uh you know ice and uh, abolition of ice and border issues and stuff like that under covid-19 and everything. Um we'll swing to him now. He's a journalist and author who's writing about an issue that 
we haven't talked about in a while on this show. I've been meaning to have uh, him on to talk about this book, but I've been really busy, and I, I will definitely get back around to talking about ice, I think, um, since they're horrible, and I hate them, and they made me famous. Um, <laughs> yeah, I feel like I'm neglecting ice a little bit as a topic on this show, and I need to do some more stuff about it, because uh, they didn't go away. They're just still out there. And um, also, I Getting think... Getting even more frozen. <laughs> yeah right, clown cops wait a minute they existed the whole time they're called immigration customs enforcement you'll never recover from that ice I called you clowns yeah Jake is going to jail now the most dangerous <laughs> time to be in jail yeah for uh, you the listener who he <laughs> loves so much oh uh, yeah I'm going to clown jail no <laughs> all right here we go. Bring him in. Bring him in. Make him grin. That's the what the Barker at this comedy club I used to do stand up at would scream at people on Sixth Street in Austin. Bring, Bring her him in. Make him grin. grin. Bring her in. <laughs> make her grin. Um, he had, he'd say like three different things. He'd say, "Bring her in. Make her grin. Uh, get her grinning. She'll start spinning." And <laughs> yeah, that one was gross. <laughs> And, uh, and then he would do this other one where he'd go, uh, we got underage boys in here. And then like, what? No, hold, hold on, listen, it's like a, it's like a carny line. He would go, we got underage boys in here. And then as people would turn their heads, he go, I didn't say what age they were under. And it was like a joke about how he had a bunch of loser old wow. comedian open micers in there. But, that uh, shows their bias. But <laughs> <laughs> this is, uh, <laughs> the, the guy, the, he's like an, he's like, getting older and he's been doing this insane job comedy club sixth street barker for like a hundred years so uh he's losing his mind so every once in a while he would just you'd be standing outside smoking a cigarette in front of the Velveeta room and then he would go uh we got underage boys in here and then he would forget to do the second part (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) he'd be like Wait, what? <laughs> Stop yelling that in the crowd. <laughs> Anyways. <Marketing> genius. <laughs> uh, I don't know why I told that story. It has absolutely nothing to do with what we are going to talk about today. Which... Well, this was by the border, kind of, right? All right, yeah. Anders, <laughs> work your magic, man. <laughs> um, I go, oh, that is kind of fucked up. I guess they do have underage boys in all right, let's just talk about the book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let's pretend like this anecdote never happened. Uh, hey, uh, welcome to the show. I don't know why I'm talking like we're on a live show. Uh, we have with us today John Washington, author of The Dispossessed, A Story of Asylum at the U.S. Border and Beyond. Welcome to the show, John. Glad to be here. All right. Uh, thank you for talking to us. Um, glad to talk to you about this today. It is obviously timely given um, the reaction to coronavirus from uh, Donald Trump. Um, I think what we're experiencing a 60-day lockdown on immigration now. Um, and I'm also just glad to talk about this because uh, – I haven't talked about ice on the show in a long time, and obviously they are my uh, wealthy benefactor. They made the show, um, so it is important to see what's going on with our friends in the modern, you know, American Gestapo. Right. 
Um, it also allows us to start the show the way we do every week, where we turn to our guests. We go, John Ice, for or against? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, hard-hitting question. We'll start with that. For or against Ice, John? Definitely against Ice. Uh, yeah, I think I think abolishing Ice would be a good start to a humane immigration agenda in the United States. But that's just a start, really. Yeah, I agree. Um, well, can you tell us a little bit about your store, uh, your book here, The Dispossessed? Um, did you name it in reference to the Ursula K. Le Guin novel of the same name, or just a happy coincidence? It definitely is named, inspired in part by Ursula K. Le Guin. I'm a fan of her work, a big fan of her work. You know, the her dispossessed which the subtitle a lot of people forget is an ambiguous utopia and really her story in part is a story of asylum a story of people who are going to other worlds to escape then the main character comes back to earth actually to and and there on earth there's you know he he sort of gets wrapped up in some of the the internal planetary politics and then has to ask for asylum again. And he actually takes asylum in the book, uh, in the, the consulate of earth. So, um, there's, you know, a a lot of sort of correspondences. It's definitely not, uh, direct parallel by any means, (laughs) but there, there are some other books that have similar names. So there's, um, the Dostoevsky book, which is sometimes translated as demons, but it's also sometimes translated as the possessed. And it's about uh. a bunch of anarchists trying to take down the Russian government or so the, the Russian monarchy or czarist rule. And then just the word itself, you know, the, the, the idea of possession and dispossession of people being dispossessed of their homes. And I, as I write in the book, you know, I think that, as it relates to asylum, it's the, 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 there's a, a series of dispossessions that happen. The first is when someone is uprooted or unroofed or kicked out of their home or for some reason their, their home is unlivable. They're dispossessed of their possessions in their life. And then they come and they try to find a new home or make a new home or find protection or security somewhere else in the United States, for example. And then when a judge is weighing their case, weighing their claim for asylum, and basically analyzing their story and judging its credibility, when they are denied, I say that they're being dispossessed again. And so there is when when they're doubly dispossessed, when they are, are, are truly dispossessed of everything, and they have neither their original home nor a possibility of finding one elsewhere, and they're you know, left in, in the absolute dark and, you know, banished or exiled or sent into the wilderness. So I, I think the the title works for me on, on, on multiple levels and definitely homage to the late, great Ursula K. Le Guin. Yeah, absolutely. I, I follow <laughs> you. Uh, wonderful uh, metaphor. Um, sure, Mexico isn't technically actually the moon. But uh, I see how how we're drawing a metaphor here, speaking a little figuratively. Um, cool. We're all in space. Hell yeah, aren't dude. we? That's true. <laughs> that is true. Good true. point. Um, well, can you tell me? Space knows no borders. Nice. Um, 
can you tell me uh, uh, what your book is about um, and why you wrote it? Give me the broad synopsis here. Sure. You know, I think it might help to kind of explain uh, how I came to it in the first place. Sure. So I, I was, you know, I, I'm a freelancer. I write for primarily The Nation and The Intercept and a couple other outlets. And I was working on a story a few years ago for The Nation about um, this idea of there being asylum-free zones in the United States. So there's a certain districts, immigration court districts in the United States, where the chances of getting asylum are really low, like almost nil in some. And it's what's disturbing about that is the people who are making the claims in, say, the immigration court of Charlotte, North Carolina, or Atlanta, Georgia, or different parts of Texas, Arizona, they're making the same claims that they are making in San Francisco, New York, uh, Boston, and yet the grant rates of asylum are so incredibly disparate. So in, in some of those latter uh, cities, the grant rate ranges between 70 and as high as 90 percent for some judges. The grant rate in Atlanta, Charlotte, you know, Texas, El Paso, they uh, drop down to the single digits. So there's clearly some sort of either ideological or political reason behind that, that the same cases are being weighed in the same in, in different places and they're just having radically different outcomes. So I, w- I was writing a piece about that. And one attorney I spoke with in Atlanta told me the story of one of her clients who was from Guatemala and he had in her eyes a really meritorious asylum claim. It was a really strong case. He had received multiple death threats from a drug trafficking organization there. His brother had received multiple death threats. He had actually worked with the FBI to prosecute some of the people in this drug ring. The FBI actually wrote him a letter of support for his asylum case. And the the, the attorney presented all this evidence, and the judge denied him his claim and deported him, denied him, deported him, and as he had feared, he was soon thereafter murdered. That really, Christ. that really struck me. I mean, really soon afterwards, and I, and you know, there, there was no better evidence for the need for asylum than when you are not given it, you are killed. <clears throat> the problem is that that evidence comes too late. You're dead. So you can go back to the judge and say you made a mistake, but that judge can't remedy that mistake anymore. And I started looking into that phenomenon, and I found that there's a a number of cases in which that happened, that people were denied asylum, deported, and were killed. And I, you know, thought it was an important topic, and I I started uh, a book proposal, and, you know, that was the original proposal that was was granted to me. And then once I got down to uh, Central America to do the research, it was in the spring of 2018, and that was right when the the child separation crisis was really hitting its peak and everyone when i when i was there i was like reading the u.s news and i was like there's so much misinformation and just like kind of uninformed explanations and lack of context that i felt it was really important to not only kind of tell that story which i was just describing but really kind of explain the context of why people were leaving why parents were taking their young children or young children were leaving the region on their own. And 
so as the same time I was trying to paint that context, which, you know, involves the legacy of colonialism, ongoing colonial efforts, extractive capitalism, um, gang, the rise of the gangs, uh, the DEA presence down there, like all, all sorts of things. I was also looking into the history of asylum and wanted to give historical context there. And so the book really sort of tells those two stories, the stories of people who are leaving, especially, but not exclusively, Central American Mexico and trying to get asylum in the United States. And then parallel to that and like interwoven throughout those stories is the story of asylum itself, which goes way, way back into ancient history. So it was first codified in the ancient by the ancient Greeks, but it goes even further back to, you know, the, the, the early Semitic religions all had some form of asylum principle or hospitality principle. And pretty much any culture you ever look at anywhere in the history of the world has some sort of uh, uh, code of welcoming the stranger, of giving reprieve to people in need, of people seeking safety. And I, I thought that that context was really important and lacking in any conversation I was hearing about modern asylum programs. Yeah, that is kind of interesting. Um, one thing that, like, I, this is, I don't know, ninth grade and obvious, and uh, everyone's been beat over the head with it a million times, but I've just been reading a lot about um, the history of colonization right now. And uh, I, one thing that kind of you take for granted sometimes is just how asylum's normal and what we're doing is an aberration and completely odd. Um, you know, when, when the conquistadors came to Latin America, they were greeted with open arms, you know, it's normal. It's a, like a human archetypal thing that's in all society. And, uh, it's a rather like, a bug of uh you know of of whatever this other thing we're doing is maybe it's a feature of capitalism or something that- well, it goes along with the rest of our culture right because our utmost important thing is transactionalism and people who flee murderers to come to our country have nothing monetarily to offer us so they're they're just turned away right i actually had a question for john about something he brought up earlier um so if you, if you're in a state like you're in Georgia or North Carolina or something with like a, a asylum firewall, you said that the admittance is in the single digits. What mm-hmm. gets you admitted? Is it just being from like a a friendly quote unquote country or what? Uh, no, actually the opposite. It's being from an unfriendly country. So when if you're from a friendly country, say if you're from Mexico, uh, with whom at least before Trump we had pretty decent relations. Um, you were typically denied asylum. So the grant rate of people um, seeking asylum from Mexico is around 10%. It's really low. Whereas the grant rate of someone fleeing um, Venezuela or China or Russia or Iran, you kind of see the types of countries I'm putting into this box here, is much, much higher. And and the reason is is because it's political. You know, it would be an absolute jab to... The Mexican government, if we said the Mexican government can't protect its own citizens or it's persecuting its own citizens. So in the, the some of the clearer examples of this in history are if you look at the grant rates from just say we can stay within Central America of Nicaraguans and 
El Salvadorans and Guatemalans in the 80s. So Nicaraguans had, I, I, you know, I, I can't don't have the number on the top of my head right now, but it's over 50% of grant rate. I, it might have been as high as 70-something. Um, you have to check me on that, but it, it, it was it was quite high. Whereas the grant rate to um, for people fleeing El Salvador and Guatemala was ranged between 1% and 3%. And that's because we backed the Guatemalan and Salvadoran governments. We were backing, you know, the extreme right-wing, crazy, oppressive governments there, whereas we were um, trying to take down the Nicaraguan government. So we we're saying, like, of course, the Sandinistas are, are persecuting uh, yeah, their people. Yeah. So if they're fleeing, of course they need asylum. Right. And ironically, you probably had a lot of people there fleeing the Contras. And then they're like, oh, how'd this happen? Come totally. come in. Totally. Right. <laughs> well, w- there are a couple different contending like reasons that were given in the media for why people are immigrating and seeking asylum. You know, a lot of conservatives say it's the U.S.'s generous welfare state that everyone wants to get a piece of. I can't uh, wait till I get a piece of this welfare state. Yeah. <laughs> Any minute now. I'm but, still waiting for my check. And then even the New York Times, I remember them saying, oh, it's because of uh, these basket case governments, their words, <laughs> south of the border, that are um, causing people to, to flee. Um, but you touched on this a little bit. What are some of the real core causes for this uh, migration and the asylum seeking? And how does that get sort of uh, filtered and, and uh, misconstrued to what we, we hear in the mainstream media. Yeah, the basket case government, I remember that line. You know, it just just absolutely abdicating all responsibility as if we never had any hand in the development or the, you know, dissolution of government in some of these countries in the first we, place. We put some cases in those baskets ourselves, yeah. Yes, we did. Yes, we did. You know, it, it really is a case by case or maybe even like subregion by subregion issue. So climate change is a big one in Central America. There's a, a huge swath of Central America that's undergoing severe decades long drought or decade plus long drought. Um, you know, the, the problem with the gangs is very real. Um, there's a really important history to tell there about, you know, the rise of the gangs, the initial rise of the gangs in Los Angeles the deportation of them to Central America, um, and then the ongoing sort of neoliberal intervention by transnational corporations and international development banks in Honduras specifically, as well as some of the other countries that really are just foreclosing any possibility of, of a development that will take place and lift the people up and not just the cronies that in many cases the United States has either installed or um, sort of given the pass on when they've, you know, through corruption, through meddling in election, through enrichment by narco trafficking have risen to power. You know, the 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 person in my book who I, I profile, Arnovis, he is from El Salvador and his individual situation is complex. So all, all the ones I, I explained before, all those reasons, sometimes they're intertwined. So one mm-hmm. person can kind of be influenced by all of those reasons. The reason he fled is because he was playing soccer and accidentally elbowed, maybe accidentally, maybe he was a little peeved, I don't know, elbowed a another player in the mouth. And that player was the brother of a local gang. And just like, I don't know, his honor was slightly impinged and 
tried to take it out on the family and they tried and he tried to kill Arnovis and in part because that part of El Salvador as many parts of El Salvador are so impoverished that he really didn't have any other options he couldn't go and move somewhere else mm-hmm. he was earning $180 a month with a a pretty decent job for that area so he he couldn't like pick up and leave he couldn't go and hide out for a while he had his family there the 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 police were not only ineffectual but actually you know extorted the locals and he really had no option but to just jet and 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 that's what he did and you know so i i think there there's a bit of a combination of extreme poverty absolute you know a- almost zero possibility for any sort of financial or any other sort of advancement and then this constant sort of ever present just specter of the gangs who are, are extremely violent, who have become the de facto state in a lot of these smaller towns and are pretty ruthless. Yeah, the mm. gang thing is really interesting because what you hear from conservatives here is that it's the gang that's trying to move here when it seems in a lot of these cases it's someone who's fleeing from that. Yeah. Right. A gang moving here is just a sitcom that hasn't been put on air yet. <laughs> I mean, not to say that it you know it has never happened for like I don't know drug trafficking reasons or something, but it's just weird to imagine that they're like, all right, we're gonna send you know Rick up to like yeah. to go start a new chapter or something. Um, just like percentage wise, how many of them could that possibly be though? You know, <laughs> like to say they're all a whole gang moving. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, like that, that too, we need to complicate a little bit because I, 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 I've spoken with a number of, of especially young men who come from gang controlled territories who were somehow influenced or involved because they're extremely pressured to do so, because that's the reigning culture in their communities, because sometimes if they don't do so, they get just the shit kicked out of them. And so they had, if they had any affiliation whatsoever, and the like, really aggressive, you know, ICE prosecutors or government DHS prosecutors are looking into that and find an uh, old photo on Facebook where they're flashing a gang sign at ten years old, trying to be cool or whatever, or have a couple tattoos, or even admit to being pressured into and forced to do something. Yeah, there there have been laws in California where people have been uh, labeled as being a gang member for wearing, like, more than two colors at the same time. Yep. Yeah, you see the same thing in Long Island. Um, So, you know, yeah, sometimes, and then there are certainly some gang members who come to the United States. um, But, you know, there is also the idea that, um, you know, if someone, especially in their youth, does something wrong and they, you know, that that doesn't mean they should be condemned to, you know, being without any protection whatsoever, uh, having to flee one state and being denied by any other, you know, there, there, there there needs to be some way to take care of these people. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't know what your research sort of uh, indicates about this, but to me, it's always seemed like 
there's also just a little bit of a misunderstanding of what's even going on with why a gang exists in the first place when it comes to us enforcing these sorts of border things because I, you know, a lot of gangs start off as like mutual aid and then it just fucking goes you know bonkers yep. and becomes violent and stuff like that but I think the idea that there is some sort of like seedy you know conspiracy to expand MS-13 into like Nebraska or some shit to take it over is uh, misunderstanding like it as being like i don't know some sort of weird um you know worldwide takeover plot or like an imperialistic thing component to what a gang is right yeah there's you know the 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 two big gangs especially in in central america are really um the collections of semi-autonomous cliques and there isn't really the hierarchy that people imagine it's not the you know, the Japanese Yakuza or the Italian Camorra or even like the Zetas in, in Mexico, it, 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 they're not wealthy. They're not typically drug traffickers, increasing a little bit more. They're, it, it's about sort of community identity. It's about just like there's no other options. It's about like very low level extortion. And they don't have grand schemes, like you're saying. They're not trying to take over Nebraska. Um, you know, they, they, they have a foothold in a couple of communities in the United States. And there are maybe presence defined very loosely of the gang in in a, a bunch of states but they're not a, a threat to very many people at all in the united states well, i wanted to ask about uh the coronavirus which i, I believe yeah. your book was written before this the outbreak yes. um and i was reading a piece you did for the nation where you're saying that even before the coronavirus there were some undocumented people who were uh, reluctant to seek medical treatment for fear of being deported. Uh, how have things uh, accelerated now that um, uh, people are in quarantine? I mean, yeah, the, the situation is, is pretty grim. You know, for the, 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 the people who are considered like essential workers, mm-hmm. you know, maybe outside of um, in the medical field, a lot of them are either undocumented or are, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm speaking specifically about New York, which is where I, I wrote the piece about mm-hmm. um, undocumented or come from, you know, recent immigrant communities or families. And they are not only, you know, having a harder time in quarantining or self-isolating because they live often in multi-generational families. They have less ability to kind of spread out. And they don't have the resources to stop working or the ability to work from home. And they're scared. You know, the, the, the guy that I, I wrote the piece about or like the, the guy that I sort of profiled in the piece was working at a restaurant. He got laid off. The next day he had a fever. He went to the hospital in Queens and they wouldn't give him a test. And he has no idea what to do now. And he, you know, is is knows he needs to work, but thinks he, you know, potentially has the coronavirus and, you know, is, is, is scared of, of ice. And it's just like, he's like, you know, hemmed in from, from every side and not, not getting a stimulus check, you know? Um, so he, he's really, you know, in, in a really tough situation right now. I think what's worse potentially, or, you know, maybe it's, it's not productive to kind of like try to compare them, but it's something really disturbing is, is, is what's going on in detention centers as well as in prisons is that, you know, there are 32,000 people with absolutely the 
complete inability to self-isolate at all, or just socially distance at all, currently in ICE detention centers. And so far, I think 700 extremely vulnerable people have been released, which is a pittance. I spoke to a, a, a gentleman on the phone from the ca- from Cameroon. He was in an ICE detention center. He is in an ICE detention center currently. He lives in a single barrack with uh, 100 other people. So, you know, if one person gets it, they're probably all going to get it. Mm. Guards come in from the outside. They don't wear masks. They went the other week a day without any soap because people have been washing their hands out of fear and they used all the, the, the um, stockpile of soap in the facility and they didn't have soap for an entire day. Something and I, he's, uh, yeah, he's uh, here to ask for asylum. So, you know, what, like the, what, what is the benefit of, of keeping him locked up right now, except potentially being in, you know, an incubatory situation for the spread of the disease. Right. Yeah. Something I've been thinking about a lot in New York is just that, uh, like, I've been thrown in the tombs a few times just for, like, being pinched by cops for, you know, biking through a red light or something. And then you have an unpaid ticket and then, bam, you're just in, you know, Rikers or some shit. And, uh, you know, that's a thing that used to be annoying. And now is that I'm thinking about it is like a death sentence if it happens. And to the same degree, these things, um, like the detention centers or, or just like, these um stories about people you know trying to go to the hospital to get tested and then finding you know ice agents waiting for them outside um have really accelerated things to a point where regardless of even the end goal of these institutions the process itself is now a huge threat like whatever you even think about whether people should be deported or thrown in jail or whatever the, the 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 part where you're just being you know, processed or, or sentence or something is, be, is becoming like, um, you know, uh, uh, like a, like a death threat. And like you were describing earlier with, uh, you know, people getting deported and then killed. And then after the fact you find out, Oh, maybe they shouldn't have been deported in the first place. This is all, um, what am I getting at? This is like a, a big, uh, indictment of, uh, the process itself. And it's, I think it's maybe getting to a point where we have to look at this and go, you know, the the debate about this needs to be over. Like this has gone too fucking far, you know? Yeah. I, I think, I think it's even worse than that actually, because not only are we putting these individual people's health who were, you know, sending to prison or jail or deporting at risk, but you know, right now we are willing to suspend our immigration laws and, you know, shut, shutter the asylum and refugee program. We're willing to stop uh, visa granting visas, as Trump, you know, signed yesterday. But what we're not willing to stop doing is deporting people. So that part of the immigration pro- you know, system is still happening. We're deporting people to countries that have currently relatively few cases, and we're deporting the actual virus to these countries. So we know that a few dozen people with the virus have been deported to Guatemala. We know that the same for Haiti. You know, in Haiti, they have something like 60-some ventilators for the entire country of 11 million people. So, you know, as the epicenter of the virus right now, the epicenter of the pandemic, we're not only, uh, you know, not really containing it within our own borders, but we're exporting it at this point. Um. Yeah. I have, a, I have a question outside of the virus, and I don't, I don't know how clued in you are to this, but 
so the big the big left push is to you know abolish ice that's the hashtag abolish ice get rid of ice um our deportations need to change et cetera. Et cetera. and i'm just wondering like in what world are we even somewhat close to that because like let's say uh we have a joe biden presidency Oof. and in four years of like mainstream <laughs> dams you know it's gonna happen it's joe mentum and uh <laughs> he's in there and he's supposed to be resisting Trump and setting the country back on course. Is there any actual will to get rid of ICE? Because I know that maybe Joe Biden personally has no investment in it, but it seems like a super unpopular program all around. Like I was reading something a year ago that like the people who work for ICE have like critically low morale and all want to quit. And that's the big concern for their uh, agency. Is there any world where like this is ramped down or actually yeah, you have to hope, you know, maybe to go back to that subtitle I mentioned at the beginning of, of our talk, like an ambiguous utopia, you have to hope that there is some world where this could happen. I don't foresee it under happening in a Biden administration. But, you know, I think the fact that we have pretty much made this a, a talking point that isn't going away is a good step. You know, 10 years ago, there was criticism of ICE, and a lot of people, you know, myself included, were writing about the abuses of ICE or, you know, what's wrong with it. But we weren't really calling for, you know, some people were, but but it, it never really hit the mainstream of calling for its abolition. And now that that's, I think that idea at least is entrenched. And I think that's a positive step. But we also should remember that ICE is less than 20 years old, you know? It's like we, we have this sort of, amnesia or status quo bias where we can't imagine a world outside of the one we're living. Um, and I think it's really good that we have at least some, some like cracked open door or window where we can see the possibility of, of, of ramping down this, this, you know, wildly abusive agency, you know, yeah, status like like mainstream Dems aren't going to do it. But, you know, people need to keep pressing. People need to keep kind of just understanding what's going on, like what's happening in ICE detention facilities, the abuses and like the, the sort of misinformation and like misidentification that ICE agents do. Um, you know, we, we sort of have cracked a little bit, barely, um, the like the, the, the green wall of border patrol where border patrol agents are have spoken out a few times and what yet we barely have done that maybe i would say we haven't done that with ice and i think i think that will come um i think that ongoing like public pressure i think like very serious reporting and uh you know just trying to understand how the agency works we will get through the wall and we'll have some like whistleblowers who are really going to reveal to the you know larger public just how insane this agency is and what sort of abuses they rain down at people for supposedly, you know, not having the papers or just for being here and, you know, living their life. Yeah. I, uh, I don't really foresee Joe Biden, uh, <laughs> folding on this at all, but I, I was, ta I was talking we'll to have somebody to about push him left. Jake. <laughs> I was talking about this. Melts on the ice issue. It's a real question. <laughs> uh, ice. Hey, hey, listen, hey, Escu Escuchar, Jack. Uh, no, I don't like ice. I like ice cream. Okay, so uh, <laughs> I was talking to him 
talking to somebody about this yesterday, and uh, he's not even doing the thing that politicians do where they just like try to speak Spanish, but it would be mm-hmm. incredible if he did. <laughs> uh, but I don't think that he's, you know, his campaign strategy is just wrong. It, he's reaching out to people that already like him and he's alienating people that don't like him. I don't think he's going to make any really feasible movements towards like Latin voters, especially in the way that like Bernie did. I think that's like going to be like, you know, a huge problem here. Um, he has a winning mindset. He doesn't need them because he's already won. He's, he's the God King. Uh, I had a follow up question. I'm not, um, based on the last thing you were saying it's kind of a hacky bullshit one so just pretend you're on cnn for a second or something (laughs) but uh if you were going to get the next hashtag going that goes a step beyond abolish ice to maybe reconsider the uh the norms before we had what would it be would it be just uh open borders borders and and i I can explain why a little bit i mean yeah actually we should talk about that a little bit because that is you know that's a kind of issue within the left itself how do we even answer that question what's uh, your take on it well you know the the same thing i was talking about with ice you know ice has been around for less than 20 years our current status of, of basically closed borders has only really been been around a little bit longer than that maybe you saw like the actual closure of the physical border in some places along like the u.s mexico border in the 90s and you know a little bit in the 80s before that but previous to that there really wasn't much substantial um infrastructure along the u.s mexico border and then if you go back just you know you know a handful of decades before that before you know 1924 was border patrol was established so before that there was no border patrol 1929 i think it was is when crossing the border was first deemed an actual crime so before in in the 19 teens we really didn't have we you know closed border we had we had an open border of course there were ways to migrate and there was um some means that the government had to deport or block people but to a large extent i would say that we had an open border um for some people and so like asians were largely excluded from that and that's that's a huge you know uh um some things that we have to qualify uh that statement on but you know when people say for example like if you don't have a border you don't have a country well you know i think an open border and no border are two very different things so you can still organize a government within a certain territory and have a border but you know closing it down and disallowing people from coming in, uh, especially in an age of global capitalism, doesn't really make sense and doesn't even really make financial sense. There's so many different studies about how, you know, more migration leads to uh, a higher GDP. And, you know, I, I don't I'm not an economist and I don't think that's the best argument to make. I think there's a stronger ethical argument to make here. And, you know, you can also just sort of go back further and say, like, well, by what means or like how did you get the capacity to decide who gets to come and go from this current, you know, geographic uh, landmass? And, you know, it, usually the people who get to control it, they gain that power through violent, sometimes genocidal conquest. So that's the legitimacy. They're basing their, uh, you know, power to 
deny other people access to that same land. And it just, I think there's so many different ways that you can make this argument. And I think that, you know, as I was saying, we should, it, we count it as, a, as a success that we put abolish ICE sort of as a, as a consistent talking point. I think we owe it to ourselves. We owe it to the left. We owe it to just, you know, our future to do the same with open borders. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I agree. Well, um, John, thank you for talking to us. Uh, please let my listeners know where they can read The Dispossessed and where they can follow you and read your other work. Yeah, thanks for, for talking. Thanks for uh, having me on. Uh, you, the Dispossessed, you can get it at Verso Books, Verso.com. You can get it at Bookshop or Amazon if you want to go there. It's 20% um, off right now on, on Verso. It is. It's 20% off. Um, then, you know, I write, like I said, usually for The Nation or The Intercept, and I'm on Twitter at JB Washing. I post a lot of my articles there, and, you know, you can find me. I, for one, will be following. Great. Thanks. <laughs> All right. Oh, thanks, John. Thanks so much. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Cheers. Okay, that was our interview with John Washington. <clears throat> um, that's the episode for this week. The main episode, that is. If you like and enjoy our show and want to support it and support us during, you know, the escape from New York reality that we live in now um, and get free bonus episodes, we do one every week, you can sign up for our patreon on patreon.com slash pod damn america um uh i think any internet browser will take you there <laughs> yeah. explorer firefox they all work they're all great i'm sorry great ways to view our bonus episodes we so, have over 100 posts y'all wow triple ditch someone triple ditch i'm kind of stuck on this i have to mention something about it someone quit the patreon and then they DM me to say that they're quitting it because they think that we've become libertarian, like Joe Rogan guys. And I don't, uh-huh. it's not the $5. I don't care about that. You know, we're like from, doing from okay. your final fantasy episode. Uh, what is it? <laughs> it became clear. <laughs> Was that it? <laughs> we talk about our libertarians are pedophiles so much. Um, <laughs> I think it's just that like we're getting in better shape. That's what it is. And so we're becoming Joe Rogan adjacent that way, you know? And yeah. that's just quarantine. <laughs> they can't handle it. What, what could that mean? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, man. I don't know. But you know what? If you want to find out, you'll have to subscribe to our Patreon. <laughs> and see all the fashy shit we're doing back there. Yeah, maybe yeah. we are. Yeah, dude. All Only the fashion is behind the paywall. <laughs> you'll have right. to give us money to become a Nazi. I also want to apologize for how badly I mispronounced Uwadogo. <laughs> <laughs> no one has brought it up. I just feel bad. <laughs> no one knows that's something that. Joe Rogan would do. Joe Adogo? That's a good point. Yeah. The biggest <laughs> podcaster in Burka Burkina Faso. Faso. <laughs> we will be uh, issuing a separate apology for this incident. Next <laughs> yeah. Listen to that. We also have merch for sale 
at poddamnamerica.bigcartel.com. There will be a link in all of our shit. If you want to buy a shirt, and I'll also have bandanas soon, and I've got some tour posters. Uh, my other podcast is Why You Mad, and that's pretty much it. I make podcasts now, and I live in an apartment and never leave. Anybody else? At Andersley here on Twitter, and if you're on Instagram, uh, Dursley1, D-E-R-S-L-E-E, number one. I'm at Patak Jokes on Twitter, and uh, my other podcast is Ballin' Out Super, uh, recapping the revolutionary show Dragon Ball Z from a leftist perspective. (laughs) (laughs) You know, really just analyzing the the material conditions of Frieza and so forth. And, uh, oh, especially stay tuned next week. I am almost finished with my radio show of my hit anime pedophile high school where i do all of the voices and sound design and it took so god damn long please listen to it when i put it out it is killing me somebody and that's all i got pedophile high school is very funny you guys should uh watch listen to that by the way um you just reminded me somebody also uh dm'd me and told me that they were really mad at me because i mentioned Mike Revolution's podcast or Mike Duncan's Revo- Revolution's podcast and I said it was good and they were like you didn't say it was good enough like you should have plugged it harder they were like this <laughs> is-, we should- is he a libertarian? I don't think so <laughs> I think he's just a historian right. but that just which re- is why this plug goes to my Revolution's podcast a well, great podcast that's better than ours yeah just b- fucking <laughs> shouts out to Mike Duncan's <laughs> Revolution's podcast it's so good you guys should listen to it I love it I love it it's I'm not worthy of revolutions it's really good uh, I listen to it all the time but like I can't I'm listening to it right now you didn't plug it enough um, maybe they, they think we should change our name to counter revolutions podcast maybe we should do that Anders. just despite this one person um, Don't give them ideas. But I was just thinking when you were talking about balling out super, it would be really funny if Mike Duncan did like a thirty-part podcast series on like Namek, on like just the, <laughs> the events of Dragon Ball Z. <laughs> right. But really, the imperialism on Namek is really un unseen in the American sphere. In the West, we can't really identify with that level of oppression. Yeah. You're not really doing socialism if your bourgeois socialism doesn't extend beyond the borders of the United States and onto the fictional planet of Namek, where <laughs> Dende Where the is. water is, the sky is green and the water is blue. Yeah. And there's and the ground is blue, too. Everything's it's green. It's a crazy place. <laughs> <clears throat> um, all right. It's finished. It's finished. We need a...